The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This decision to strike by the teachers, I just think it's absolutely disgraceful. We've got record wage increases on paper, but we've got record wage decreases that are being felt. So many people just bill the NHS for more and more things. There's no major control on expenditure anywhere. We've had a few listeners saying we haven't been very positive lately. I wonder why that could be. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The cost of living squeeze is ongoing, co-pilot, and this little sign it's easing. UK inflation was still up at 10.5% during the year to December, according to new figures from the Office for National Statistics. There are signs these post-lockdown supply chain snarl-ups are easing, and wholesale energy prices have fallen significantly too, but still... Households are facing soaring grocery and fuel bills and double-digit inflation won't help ministers as they struggle to convince public sector unions to accept pay settlements. On cue, Allison, school's out for winter, or at least part of it, with the National Education Union announcing what's been called on-off strike action in England and Wales during February and March, with teachers in Scotland striking too. And in other news, it seems that NHS reformer Planet Normal Pet Peeve is now a respectable topic of conversation on planet Earth as well. Labour leader Keir Starmer has decided that NHS inefficiencies are a mind-boggling waste of time. His words. (laughs) He wants patients to be able to bypass GPs and self-refer to specialists. An interesting development. But if NHS reform's complex, try getting your head round the escalating row over gender identity that's exploded between Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party and the Westminster government. But you saved your choices, words, co-pilot, in Wednesday's Telegraph for Metropolitan Police offender David Carrick, who's admitted to more than 80 sex offences, including 48 rapes against 12 women during two decades in the force. How were such atrocities allowed to happen, Alison? One bad, entirely rotten apple or proof of institutional decay? Before we launch into that thorny topic, I should tell listeners, just before we started recording, you accused me of a microaggression for pointing out that you had quite a lot of chips on your shoulder, and then we decided (laughs) it was called a microphone aggression. So in future, any cheekiness from you. I see what you did there, mate. Your rapier-like wordsmithery. Gosh, I can't keep up. I don't really want to talk about this Metropolitan Police thing because what the hell can we say? David Carrick was actually known to colleagues as a bastard Dave. Any indication there, Halligan, that maybe he wasn't making the finest, most upstanding member of the constabulary that the members of the public could wish for? So as you say, admitting to this absolute sort of misogynist charter over two decades. But the real shock, I suppose, is that he was allowed to continue working even after the Met and three other police forces had received sundry complaints about him. And Liam, he wasn't even suspended as recently as July 2021 when he was arrested for rape. I mean, an armed officer, an alleged rapist in uniform, still allowed to present himself to the public as an upstanding member of His Majesty's Constabulary. Now, these guys, guys like him, absolute scumbag like Wayne Cousins, who murdered the lovely Sarah Everard, hiding in plain sight, using their badges and their uniform to reassure victims. And as I said in the column, my daughter lives in London. You always say, oh, you know, darling, if you feel a bit frightened, just ask a policeman. I mean, with 800 Metropolitan Police officers under investigation for sundry violence against women crimes, you do wonder about that. So what do you think, Liam? You know a bit about the police, the tribal culture which fiercely protects its own, regardless of how deviant or alarming the bastard Daves are. There's bound to be close camaraderie, esprit de corps between police officers, men and women up and down the country, just as there is you know, quite literally esprit de corps across our armed services. You know, Policemen and women have a really tough job to do, and you'd expect them to have each other's back, if you like, and to look after each other's interests 
as they try to tackle what is an increasingly complex and often quite dangerous job. But when that covering your colleague's backside extends to open knowledge of not just criminal, but absolutely awful behavior towards vulnerable people, then that's just completely mind-boggling. And you do have to conclude that, unfortunately, in parts of our police force, in this case, the Metropolitan Police Force, which often, I'm afraid, doesn't cover itself in glory. I'm not saying these guys and girls don't have a difficult job. Of course they do. But you have to conclude that there is systematic cover-ups happening. And that is deeply, deeply worrying, given the vital role that the police play in upholding civic order. And also they're meant to signify trust and authority and fairness and above all justice. Cressida Dick hasn't been out the door very long and now her successor, Sir Mark Rowley, has a really tough job. He's only been in the role, you know, since last summer, I think it was, July. And surely there has to be some kind of very, very significant response to this incredible revelation about Bastard Dave, as he was called. I do wonder how the new Metropolitan Police Commissioner can restore national confidence in the Metropolitan Police Force, because it is not just London's police force. It is the kind of badge carrier. It's the most important and influential police force in the country. And what's happened here in the capital reflects badly, I'm afraid, and I don't like saying this, on the whole service up and down these islands. Yes. Before we plunge into the exciting strikes, I think February the 1st is going to be essentially a general strike as far as I can tell. We've had a few listeners saying we haven't been very positive lately. I wonder why that could be. But I did think this week, Liam, now I haven't been very impressed, particularly since Rishi Sunak took over. There hasn't been a lot for Conservatives to cheer. But I am really pleased this week to see that Sunak and the government are going to be blocking the Scottish Parliament's gender identification legislation. And I think this signals to me that Tories are prepared to put the welfare of children and the rights of women above this dangerous ideology as I see it. Now, of course, by doing this, they risk allegations from usual suspects that they're transphobic, stirring up hatred against the most vulnerable people. But I think, and lots of women and men agree with me, the most vulnerable people are actually children. And this is not just a minor skirmish in the so-called culture wars. It really could not be more serious. Now, just for listeners who aren't quite up to date, legislation passed by the devolved Holyrood Parliament would allow Scots to change their gender from the age of 16 and removes the need for a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria to get a gender recognition certificate. Now, Liam, we've had 16-year-olds, you in the more recent past, me not that long ago, and we know that their brains and bodies are not fully formed and giving them a green light to take life-altering drugs and to have irreversible surgery strikes me as the sort of far shores of lunacy. There were very ugly scenes in the Commons while this was being debated. The excellent Tory MP, Miriam Cates, saying she'd had a very unpleasant experience in a lady's toilet the other day when a man was there. Labour MP for Canterbury, Rosie Duffield, she's been an absolute heroine throughout this. Shouted down by men on her own side. Just astonishing. Jeering at her, she was asking the Scottish Secretary, Alistair Jack, to recognise the strength of feeling among women, women's rights groups, activists in Scotland. In fact, Liam, what's very interesting, and I think one reason why Rishi Sunak is on quite safe ground here, is the majority of Scottish people are not very impressed with this at all. So Sturgeon is ploughing ahead with, I think, her usual divisive tactics, divide and rule. Let's push through something more extreme stream and then complain that the English Parliament is attacking her. But I think that just the idea of a bill that allows anyone at all to legally, legally self-identify as either sex with no checks. Within three months rather than two years. Also weighing in was the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, who I thought looked like quite a sort of common sense person, saying that 16-year-olds should be able to self-identify 
as they wish, because Gillian had gone to work in a shop when she was 16. So, of course, that is totally comparable to getting your breasts hacked off, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm pleased. I think this is a positive step for the government. I think we've seen the infiltration of so many institutions, particularly under the Carrie Johnson government, when Stonewall had a seat at the table in number 10, uh, Stonewall, Mermaids, all these very, very aggressive trans activist groups, often not linked to actually trans people, I think. And I think it's high time that the government, the Conservative government, behaved in a Conservative manner and tell them to get back in their box. I have to say, I've looked on at the debate in Scotland and Nicola Sturgeon's hardening tactics when it comes to gender issues, just with my head in my hands, not only because I think her direction of travel is completely mad, but also because I think there are so many natural SNP voters, you know, kind of high church Scottish Presbyterians Mm. who are very honourable people who very honourably want independence for Scotland. (laughs) They're fully entitled to that view, but they will surely not support what Nicola Sturgeon is doing. So it's almost as if she's kind of winking to them to say, you know, hold your nose and trust me, because this is the way we demonstrate that the Tories are determined to limit Scotland's ability to self-rule. But what an issue to pick. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me unless your goal is to be as incendiary as you possibly can and get as much column inches as you possibly can when the Westminster Parliament moves to veto something for the first time since Scottish independence a quarter of a century ago. So I do think these are deeply cynical tactics over such a sensitive issue. And I cannot believe, I watched that Rosie Duffield speech mm. in the House of Commons in particular, and it was absolutely insane the way an honourable woman who speaks for many, many, many women of her generation. Absolutely. Could she be a more sort of progressive liberal person? She's not only a Labour MP, she's a Labour MP well known for her social conscience and her sort of generosity of spirit. See her shouted down, I thought was absolutely disgraceful. Some of the people who were yelling rubbish at her and even worse, I thought that they should just have been, you know, told to get out, really. It was totally unparliamentary behaviour. And I do think it's interesting, Liam, because as you mentioned at the top, we're seeing Sir Keir Starmer now, aren't we, striking a more sort of commonsensical, reasonable view. We'll talk a bit later about what he said in a Sunday Telegraph piece. And yet, what Starmer is still burdened with is this very, very divisive issue of gender identity. And I don't think he can go into the next election. There's too many women like me, like women you know, who simply will not vote for a party which is going to press on with this horrendous prospect of our sex being done down and treated as irrelevant. I can't think of anything that makes a lot of women angrier. Although it was interesting, did you see that Starmer did say that 16 was too young to self-identify. He is slightly raising his head above the parapet. He still can't define what a woman is for some reason. And yet he is saying that 16 is too young to change gender, risking, of course, the wrath of Labour's hard left and a lot of the more vociferous elements of the trans lobby because there are plenty of trans people who don't agree with this, by the way. They don't want to be part of a massive national falling out, a huge controversy. They're just trans and they want to get on with their lives. And that's a completely reasonable thing. They're often the most maligned people and vulnerable and they need support. I fully accept that. But there has to be some kind of balance struck here. And Starmer is trying desperately to get nearer to a sort of common sense mainstream position, one of tolerance, of course, towards trans people, but not to the extent that others feel unsafe and in danger physically with these rules, as well as being, of course, desperately worried for young kids who they feel are being drawn into a culture that they may live to regret. Well, we're hearing, aren't we, from a lot of Planet Normal listeners working in higher education, different government institutions, and they are saying that their life, if they don't go along with these crackpot beliefs, are made extremely uncomfortable, you know, and their jobs even threatened. And I think this is a huge 
topic for the Tories and they should really seize it. I think we should touch on these strikes, don't we? I should say to listeners, I don't know if I've mentioned, perhaps I have, but I did train in the 80s as a teacher myself. And I was thinking with watching the lovable NEU, the National No Education Union, with Mary Busted and her mate Kevin Courtney, the joint general secretaries of this lovely organisation. I was thinking, co-pilot, back to when I was in the staff room and you'd go in, whichever staff room it was, and there would always be the union rep sitting in the corner, Dave, the NUT rep, leather jacket, sideburns, roll-ups, permanent fug of grievance and class war around his head. So not much has changed. I mean, this decision to strike by the teachers, I just think it's absolutely disgraceful. Have they not noticed how children emerged from the pandemic undereducated, mentally ill, and they have the nerve, the nerve. I mean, Mary Busted saying the other day, children only get one chance at school, said Mary. She's not very big on irony, Liam, is she? (laughs) You, of course, tackled this in your column as well on yesterday, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes to this episode. Interestingly, there, you mentioned the NUT, which was the big teaching union, Now, there is a split within the NEU. This is the National Education Union. It was formed when the NUT, which was more radical and the more moderate Association of Teachers and Lecturers, the ATL, merged. And it's interesting that a lot of ex-ATL members don't want to strike. No, they don't. Whereas ex-NUT members do want to strike. Only a 51% turnout in this ballot. And I would say that if the teachers think that they've got the public support that the nurses have got. They are sorely mistaken. I think there's tremendous impatience among the silent majority of British people. They might not tell pollsters, you know, a nice young person comes up to you in a bobble hat outside a station and says, oh, what do you think? I'm working for a polling company. You're not going to tell them, are you? I think it's outrageous the teachers are going to strike because you're going to worry that they think you're heartless. But actually, if you're a working parent, this is a disaster, not just for you keeping the wolf from the door and going out to earn the money to pay these massive bills. And we'll come on to the latest inflation numbers soon. But also your kids' education, kids that have lost so much during that two years of lockdown. There are still tens of thousands of what we call ghost children, kids who haven't yet come back to school. This is a complete disaster for our children, for our society. You know, whisper it, for our economy, that people's education has been so seriously disrupted and I think it is callous and I think the teachers will very very rapidly lose public support if they've only got a tiny majority of public support at the moment that's what the polling evidence shows before they've even gone on strike then there's only really one direction that that can go and I think they're not nearly as strong as the nursing unions and I think the government will drive a very hard bargain with the teachers during February and March as and when these strikes unfold. Well, remember also, of course, it was the NEU which was screaming for schools to be closed, even though children were at almost zero risk from COVID. And then trade unionists fought tooth and nail to keep the schools closed for as long as possible. So this stat that jumps out at me, Liam, British kids lost more days of education than any other country in Europe except Italy. Now, these militant buggers, they don't give a damn about kids and their welfare. And we should also remember that Sweden never closed schools for the under 16s. So Swedish kids lost no education and British children lost months and months. And I think that the dominant thing, Liam, here is that it made education appear to be optional. If the teachers weren't bothered about being in schools, why should the children? And that's what we're seeing now. The Centre for Social Justice found a fifth of all children had been missing from school since the pandemic. I mean, these are these are staggering numbers, you know, 1.8 million children kind of vaguely not bothering to show up. So I think that that's, you know, we've got plunging academic attainment soaring child mental health problems and the NEU think it's okay to go on strike. I completely agree with you. I think there are thousands of teachers. I know some of them are my friends and for them teaching is a vocation. They're devoted to the children. 
And it's these thousands of other activists who I think are bringing the profession into disrepute. We are going to talk about NHS reform in a moment because you've got an interesting interview on that subject, Alison. But just before we get to that, I did want to mention inflation. As we're recording Planet Normal, we're absorbing news from the ONS that UK inflation remains in double digits. It's still 10.5% during the year to December, the Consumer Price Index. Not far off that 41-year high of 11.1% back in October. And this does worry me a lot, Alison. I thought the number would be lower, I must admit. Mm. I wrote that I think that Sunak will meet his target quite easily of halving inflation by the end of the year, getting it down to five, five and a half percent. I think it's an almost an arithmetic inevitability unless there's a spectacular escalation in conflict between Russia and the Western world and global energy markets go nuts in response. But just get your head around some of these numbers, Alison. This is what inflation does. So the ONS told us uh, earlier this week that average pay in the UK went up during the last few months of 2022 by 6.4%. That's the highest increase in pay since 2001. And yet once you factor in inflation, what we call real wage increases, you know, allowing for the cost of living rise, actually real wages fell by 3.4%. That's the steepest fall in real wages since 2009. So we've got, you know, record wage increases on paper, but we've got record wage decreases that are being felt. And of course, that's why there is industrial action happening. This is what inflation does. But just one little bit of context here, if I may. The ONS told us that in November, there were 467,000 days lost to strike action in one month alone, which is the highest for many, many years. And if you annualize that, you times it by 12, as if that rate of strike action was sustained for a whole year. That's 5.6 million strike days lost. That's this kind of imputed value of striking where we are now, Alison. 5.6 million strike days lost in a year. How do you think that compares to the winter of discontent? Well, I'll tell you. In the winter of discontent, not 5.6 million strike days were lost. 29.5 million strike days were lost in 1979. So, yes, there is industrial action. Yes, for lots of us, it's a huge pain in the neck. But the 1970s, that was a completely different time. We're not there yet. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Well, Planet Normal listeners will know from the deafening tirade that comes out of the speaker every week, we have talked a lot about the crisis in the NHS, particularly the urgent need for reform. So this week, I invited onto the rocket an eminent researcher who is, as we're about to hear, fiercely eloquent on the subject of what needs to happen to improve our dire healthcare system. Angus Dalgleish is a professor of oncology at St. George's University of London. He's a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences, fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, and he was elected fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians following a stint in Queensland's Royal Flying Doctor Service. Gus returned from Brisbane to work in the UK in 1984 at the Institute of Cancer Research, where he is now 
visiting professor. He has also been a remarkable medical pioneer developing a vaccine for HIV AIDS. Gustav Gleisch was also music to our ears, a prominent critic of lockdown, arguing from the start that shutting down non-COVID areas in the NHS would lead to disaster and to many more deaths. He recently described being a doctor in the NHS as like working in a lunatic asylum. So I began by asking Professor Dalglish if he was encouraged by Sakia Starmer calling for reform of the NHS finally, and what would meaningful reform look like? Well, I was surprised, <laughs> very much surprised. But then was treating basically came out with one of the things that I've been pushing forward for a long time, and that's that the GP service is dead. I mean, you cannot have them as the gatekeepers. And I do think that that was very telling that he picked up on that. I made a big point of that previously that you cannot rely on the GPs to refer you to hospitals for investigations. So there is perhaps some light at the end of the tunnel when the Labour Party realise things. Happen. Have to be reformed radically, as opposed to just more of the same. You recently described the NHS as "quotes like working in an asylum." Can you give us some examples of the madhouse? Well, working in an asylum is basically how many layers of people you have to deal with to get anything done. And、uh, I think one of the things that gets very close to、uh, my heart and other people's is the constant need to do things which we feel are completely unnecessary. Every year, we are required to have an appraisal and undergo mandatory courses, which、uh, they seem to get more and more. And my real bug is that they treat you with total contempt, and the fact that if you've done one two years ago on completely what I would regard for senior clinicians extremely unnecessary things to do again and again, is you have to keep repeating it, and it's an affront to say that you've forgotten everything that you said and learned two years ago when nothing else has changed. And this is part of the leeching of the NHS services. These are companies making all these things up, then they. They bill the NHS like so many people just bill the NHS for more and more things. There's no major control on expenditure anywhere. You've had a very long and distinguished career in the NHS, Gus. Can you look back for us to a time when things were working well for patients and clinical staff? And you know, we think of the many attempts at reform: the Blair reforms, the Ken Clark reforms, the Lansley reforms. What has gone wrong? Why have we arrived at this Kafkaesque mess? Well, the first thing is the reforms that. Took away the clinical governments. It was brought in by Ken Clark, etc., for management to manage doctors so they don't waste money. I mean, it's an irony now when you think of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Blair reforms were just appalling. I mean, he pushed through GPs, stagnated their responsibility, a whole range of things were pushed forward. The PFIs, the buying purchases, all these things just got worse and worse. And as for the Lansley reforms, they were just Such a mess that they gave up on them while he was still in post. So go back to what was a very good time. I remember working when I was a registrar in a major hospital, and it was in Australia. It was in Brisbane at the time, when the the head of the hospital, the、uh, the CEO, the chief medical officer, was that. And I remember him when there was a crisis. He was there. In the outpatients A and E, when it was overloaded, he was in intensive care when there's a possibility he didn't have the right equipment, etc. And then he made the decision, and then he told what were then administrators to sort it out with the doctors. And ironically, if you have to do something very quick and sweeping, we need to move the entire directorate back to the clinical level. The clinicians need to sort out what needs to be done for the presenting patient populations, and they need administrators to do it for them. And the waste involved in this is just astronomical. So in the old days, the surgeon did the operating theatre with the, the nurse who managed it, the head nurse, and they would order all this stuff. It wasn't ordered through third parties and what have you. A system that's so arcane. That if something's available for say ten pound at Tesco's, they'll manage to pay thirty, forty pound for the same thing through their ordering systems, and so all this really has to go. Are you saying that there are multiple parasitic layers that make very little contribution to frontline patient care? 
Yes, and the problem is they're getting worse. The last time that there was a, what do we need to do, shake up the NHS, they appointed regional super managers at nearly 300,000 a year, when it's the last thing we need to do. We need to strip out layers and layers of managers, which just basically look after the status quo. I think if the system was working really well, then they could justify it, but they cannot justify what is a, a total failed system and when you peel back what's going on, how the system works, it is unbelievable embedded inefficiencies in the system. It has got so bad, the intermesh has to be completely stripped. And I would say start again. And it does need a clinical-led directorate for medical care. Every night on the news, we see the crisis in the NHS reported as if it were an act of God or a severe weather event. We never see a senior manager wheeled out to explain this unbelievable and deadly failure in an organisation which they are supposed to be running. Gus, it feels like there's zero accountability from this highly paid management class for an institution which soaks up north of £150 billion of taxpayers' money every year. Isn't it astonishing? Yeah, it is astonishing. I agree. And also, it really does mean we have to you know, completely rip it apart and start it again. The tragedy we have seen in the hospitals with the ambulances and everything being overcrowded and people not getting ambulances. It is very interesting that there is an awful lot of people. Now, I was surprised when my own colleagues told me this, that the amount of pressure on the A&Es should not be there. And even they are starting to say, you know, if we had a small charge for attending A&E, it could reduce the demand by 20%, one of my colleagues said, who was always previously very left-wing, free at the point of service. Even they are saying, you know, a charge would make a big difference, and it would because it would lead to accountability. We know for a fact that um, surgeons who work in the NHS and then do private work are pushing through a lot more cases in the private hospital. So it shows it can be done, doesn't it? It does show it can be done. And I have a very good friend of mine who works at a major London teaching hospital who now has all his lists done in a private hospital. And he gets a third more work done than if it was being done in an NHS hospital. Does that not tell you something really, really important? And what is that? What is that about? It's about efficiency. I mean, we have 7.1 million people waiting for operations to be done. People like him and that arrangement could start to chip away at it. So to cut out the GPs, well, that, surely that would cause the entire temple would come crashing down with horror, wouldn't it, if we suggested that? No, no, I don't think so. We don't have enough GPs and failing as we need more and more people to use the services. So what we need is some simple kind of triage centres, which can be rapid diagnostic centres. So you have a nurse even, you don't even have to have a doctor, you could have a very senior clinical nurse. And so you would you have to take the load off them because they can't cope. And I know that a lot of people don't want to be GP partners anymore, but they're happy to work locum rates. So we're going to have to address the whole GP subcontracting issue. I personally think that they should, uh, as I've spoken to many who don't want the responsibilities of being a partner, that they should be brought in to hospitals attached to A&E. So you don't have this GP won't see me going to A&E. They need to have common responsibility for the front entrance, as it were. And you should be able to assess the front entrance without sitting in a queue for 25 hours and, and rapidly having a blood test and a scan, which other people managed to do very well. France, Germany, I worked in Australia. It was a superb system. And they had NHS adapted, but they also had, you had to pay specifically for it. And what I thought was very interesting, you could pay more if you wanted a better service. You don't worry that that would lead to a low quality service for poorer people? Well, you can't get a poorer service for the nation than we've got at the moment. 
It's absolutely impossible. You can't have everything free at the point of service for everything unless, you know, you live in Nirvana or somewhere, <laughs> which is impossible. So you either have to ration it by limiting the people's access to it, which is what's happening at the moment, or you actually price it what it is. I've got friends who work in the ambulance service who feel that it's grossly abused and that uh, there should be some charging for services. And if it is deemed that it was relevant, they can get most of the money back. We have to entertain this, which others have entertained and which works. Gus, during lockdown here on Planet Normal, Liam and I and our guests were warning of the collateral damage from closing parts of the NHS. You will know in your own cancer area what happened with fewer people being picked up early on, fewer scans and so on. How would you describe the state of cancer care now and how badly were non-COVID patients let down by the NHS? Well, I'd like to remind you that I also was one of the first to flag up not to do lockdown because the lives saved by lockdown would be dwarfed by the lives lost by the consequences of lockdown. The scale of this is astronomical. As we are starting to see now, with fact, excess deaths now are going up and up and they're not coming down, which you would expect after a pandemic when everything was settling down. Why the government did not stop and say, what is the modelling for if we do the lockdown and everything else? This was really, really straightforward. Why was it not done? It was unbelievable. I would have to use the word negligent. But finally, Gus, if we look forward to the National Health Service in a decade, should there be a National Health Service, will we be looking at a service closer to the public-private models of successful health services around the world? What would you personally hope to see? Well, I wouldn't want to see it as it is because it'll just get worse and worse. It goes from one reform disaster to another without any loss of momentum and no tangible benefit. So I would like to see them embrace, basically say, we've hands up, we finally admitted this system's not working. We have to look at the bits of reforms that were helpful in what departments, etc. And I think we must ha- end up with a clinically led directorate of um, the health service where the doctors and nurses want to join and want to work in it. I mean, for years and years, I have been complaining. I said, I see these wonderful young students with A-levels galore, and they can't get into medicine. And they'd love to do it. They'd make perfect, oh, we don't have enough places. We don't have the funding. Well, now we're seeing the result of that. We've got to train our own doctors and nurses. And to have nurses on degrees alone, which is, I think is ludicrous. They should have it like a trainee mechanism. They should not have to pay for degrees. Bring back the status enrolled nurse system and then you get people done then they get paid and they'll do it and they won't drop out in droves if you manage them properly in clinical units where you get morale what the managers managed to do is destroy morale everything destroyed the morale the cohesive that was holding the NHS together in spite of poor terms of pay and dreadful conditions and that has all gone so we have to bring that back first Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a brilliant guest aboard the Rocket of Right Thinking. Professor Angus Dalgrish, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us today. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour. Thank you. Good interview, co-pilot. I think it's very timely. I do think the NHS debate is now coming into view. Here we are with this vital public service And we're excited because there might possibly be some kind of debate about what to do. (laughs) We're miles away from actually doing something that helps people. But anyway, it's not just people like Gus Douglas who are frontline practitioners with the kind of gumption and personality to speak out as he has with such authority. It is interesting that Labour Health Secretary in the Shadow Cabinet, Wes Streeting, has been ploughing this furrow. And I think it's even more interesting that Keir Starmer feels that he's had to follow his young pretender, because let's be in absolutely no doubt, West Streeting is an interesting politician. He won't use the word Blairite, but that's what he is. And there is a growing group of people in the Labour Party, including on the backbenches, not so much among the old Corbynistas and Momentum and the hard left, but there is a growing group of people on the Labour backbenches and among the party across the country I've been talking to. They can sense power and they know in their bones 
that British elections are won on the centre ground. Hence Keir Starmer chancing his arm a little bit more on the transgender debate, as we were saying earlier, and also hence Keir Starmer, as Tony Blair did, aligning himself with long-suffering members of the public when it comes to the NHS, rather than the NHS workers themselves. Well, I love talking to Gus. He is a remarkable guy. I mean, he is, he's a polymath as well as being a brilliant oncologist. And how great, isn't it, to have someone, I think he's in his early 70s, he's able to look back to a time when clinicians ran the NHS for guess what, Liam, the benefit of the patients. Absolutely astonishing. And as he talks about that, the tears of meaningless management, splashing money around. Imagine being Professor Angus Dalgleish and being forced every couple of years to do a mandatory training course on a subject in which you are the world authority. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's money being doled out, our money being doled out left, right and centre. And I agree with you. I think Starmer has seen his chance. I did feel it's a bit like, do you remember when Rishi Sunak finally came out and said that actually he tried to stop a lockdown and you were a bit knocked, weren't you? Because you felt we'd been at the crease batting like crazy. He should have resigned at the time. He could have actually changed the outcome. I know, but I feel that now about Starmer and Streeting, because as you know, on Planet Normal, we have been going on and on about what on earth is going to happen. Going on and on? That's unlike you. (laughs) I'm usually just a very judicious, modest use of words. But the truth is, for weeks, I was writing in my column, my readers cannot see a GP. And what was happening on the letters page from the BMA, from the Royal College of GPs, Alison Pearson is stirring up hate against doctors. That's literally what you got accused of if you dared to say that patients, listeners will remember Joy, the wife of Nick Stokes, who couldn't get to see a GP and expired in horribly quickly of the cancer. And she had been prescribed, Liam, let us never forget, prescribed online physio for a woman who shortly after died of brain cancer. So awful. I mean, listeners will have heard every so often when we were doing the interview, Gus and I would just, you just laugh. Download a hip operation and other new NHS technologies. But see how interesting. So on Sunday, in the Sunday Telegraph, the heart of the beast, Sir Keir Starmer writing an article vowing to slash mind-boggling NHS bureaucracy. Have they not noticed that before? Saying the service must either reform or die. Labour leader cautioning that well-meaning reverence for the health service has supplanted reality. It must not be off limits for criticism. The number of times we've said that he's actually ranting almost in a Farage-esque manner against the bureaucratic nonsense of patients encounter. So, yes, but just to sum up, these are promising noises being made because he can now say the situation for the NHS patients is now intolerable and dangerous. Indeed, it is. And they have now renounced the idea that the NHS is still the envy of the world because it's barely the envy of tooting, never mind the world. And I do think this has become a brilliant peachy open goal for Labour, hasn't it, Liam? Starmer can taunt Rishi at PMQs if a heart attack patient calls an ambulance with chest pains at 12.03. How long will it take the ambulance to get there? Now, that may not be very fair to the Prime Minister, but boy, is it fertile territory for election fighting. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. As you know, Liam and I absolutely love reading them. And also, as co-pilot Halligan will point out, I often shamelessly rip them off for my own national newspaper column. Here's Richard. Richard is the father and prospective father-in-law of a teacher. The majority of NEU and NAHT members have not voted to strike, says Richard. These are the teachers and leaders, including those members of my own family, who consider teaching to be a vocation, not just a job. They work long hours, often handling student-parent-related issues into the early evening and spend much of the weekend marking and planning. The first week of my daughter's long holiday is written off by pure stress recovery and, interestingly, any sickness tends to happen then too. 
they are just unable to fall ill during term time. They kept schools open as far as possible during lockdown. My request is not to blame teachers for the strikes and to be very clear in your words where responsibility for the strikes rests. The vitriol directed towards teachers is often disgusting and has come as a huge shock to those, almost all, who have never experienced industrial dispute before. Response from readers in the Telegraph can be more balanced than elsewhere, but still difficult for our daughter and her fiancé to read a very different reaction to those of the NHS strikes. My daughter and future son-in-law are very worried about union and peer pressure to walk out, even though they both declined to vote. They certainly didn't dare vote against strike action, not what they entered teaching for, sadly. Thanks for that, Richard. Really interesting. Here's one from Caroline, not her real name, for reasons that will become clear. I've been listening to Planet Normal for some time now, and I absolutely love it. It was a lifeline for me during lockdown when I felt I'd woken up in a world I no longer understood. Suffice to say, I'm quite reluctant to be open about listening to you and reading The Telegraph generally with colleagues, because I'm an academic in the social sciences at a pretty well-regarded university. I do research with children and young people, and I'm increasingly finding that the woke takeover is affecting my institution and specific field of study. I'd say my work's quite important, but I'm feeling despondent about how we deal with matters affecting children and young people, particularly regarding gender, sexuality and gender identity. It feels nigh impossible to get research funding or to publish in academic journals without subscribing to gender identity theory. Academics that push back are seen as part of some international cabal of far-right fundamentalist religious groups who apparently want to see the complete erasure of trans kids and any type of sex education in schools. This is a complete mischaracterization, but the smear campaigns are relentless and designed to shut down any critical debate. Academics celebrate getting those they disagree with cancelled and claim to be, quote, devastated when gender-critical academics are given a platform and invited to speak. Children are described as transgender with absolutely no consideration of other matters at play or adult obligations to children beyond just affirmation. Quite frankly, I take issue with the entire conceptualization of non-binary and trans. While I think people have every right to be tolerated, irrespective of their choices, and I celebrate anyone's desire to push back against narrow and restricted stereotypes, I have no idea how identity has come to be gendered. I would not, though, at my stage in my academic career, ever express this perspective because I'd be hounded out of my institution and I doubt many of my collaborators would work with me again. Maybe I'm a coward. I definitely feel increasingly disconnected from my work because I have to align myself with views I don't believe in. Free speech on campus is an absolute joke. My efforts to stimulate a critical discussion in a seminar with students about the meaning of, quote, white privilege and whether it really exists fell completely flat. Students themselves, I find, aren't actually particularly woke, but some of them are, and they're the ones with the loudest voices. It's all getting incredibly tedious, and quite frankly, the degrees we're dishing out are barely worth the paper the certificates are printed on. Grade inflation is an absolute fact, although my institution resists that claim, and it happens because students are consumers, and our career progression is tied to their feedback about our teaching, which in turn is tied to whether they get the grade they want or not. We'll eventually put ourselves out of business because there are plenty of graduates entering the market with a 2-1 who can barely write. It's so unjust on the students. We accept postgraduate applicants regardless of their competency because we want the fees and some students then fail. They've essentially been set up to fail and it's unethical. Anyway, your podcasts are a welcome respite from it all. Keep up the great work. Best wishes, Caroline, not her real name. That is astonishing. It is astonishing, isn't it? And I, I, obviously it was a long email, but well worth reading and amazing to think that Caroline has to hide in her very eminent, respectable place of work the fact that she is a Planet Normal listener, which should be a recommendation. I did actually look up Caroline, not her real yeah. name, to check her bona fides, obviously, and she is an academic in a very respectable university. On Planet Normal, I think we should be really, really digging deep into this, Liam, because the, the level of, of censorship of 
perfectly mainstream. The views that Caroline is frightened to express are the views of most normal British people. So this is Mrs. Normality on Twitter. Constantine Kishin was fabulous on Planet Normal. I was incredibly impressed. What a world we live in when I can see myself supporting a Russian for the position of British Prime Minister. Quite right. And Anne says, Dear Alison and Liam, Firstly, thank you for keeping us sane amidst all the wild rubbish doing the rounds. We can't understand amidst all the strikes why everyone isn't wanting to give the care workers a decent pay rise. Unless we sort out the thousands of elderly people, us included, who wish to stay in their own homes and allow beds to be freed up in the hospitals, we are just going round in circles and nothing will ever get sorted. So please, can we support the people at the bottom of the care system, pay them more and get that organised? And then perhaps everything else will fall into place. What are our so-called leaders doing all day? Not a lot, it seems. Common sense appears to have vanished. Carry on the good work. Best wishes, Anne. I couldn't agree more, Anne. Let's get some pay rises for care workers among the lowest paid people doing such essential work. And then we'll be able to free up some of the hospital beds. This one's from Tom, who's a former lecturer, unlike Caroline, not her real name, who's still in post. Thank you, Alison, for your article in The Telegraph on the woke chill freeze factor driving normal people from jobs. The Inquisition's working well. I retired a bit earlier than I'd planned after a woke attack by students against me, which my college principal basically backed. I fought it off thanks to some fortuitous positive reviews, but it poisoned the atmosphere for me in college. I now know what Kafka was describing in the trial. You don't know what others are thinking about you. You're unsettled. You're made to feel like somebody who's Jewish in Hitler's Germany. Extremely nasty for my wife, whose grandparents were murdered in the Holocaust and who's fearful of the authorities as a result. I'm sure all this comes from the schools. Some 15 years ago, I first noticed students saying they were products of a colonialist racist society, obviously dripped into them at school by the blob. Gove sacking as education secretary was a cowardly cave-in and ended any chance of a pushback in my view. It's astonishing that the great example of 1939-45 UK resistance to the world's greatest racist movement has been replaced as a national background by the slavery in the Stuart era, finally ended, of course, by the Anglican Wilberforce, unknown to the current disastrous Archbishop of Canterbury, apparently. <laughs> P.S. I have an audio recording of my kangaroo court hearing if it's of interest although not for quoting. That tells a tale, doesn't it? And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As ever, we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. It's your turn, Halligan. Well, I think it has to be Caroline, not her real name, for a really Mm. astonishing email. We did read out Caroline's email at some length. I did actually edit it back slightly, so apologies for that, Caroline, but I sincerely hope you felt we got your views across. Do email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We'll look out for that email, put mug winner in the subject heading to that email and your postal address. And a rare as rocking horse, poo, rare as hen's teeth, Planet Normal mug will be winging its way towards you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and you jolly well should, because we do our best, don't we, co-pilot? I do my best to spite you. <laughs> despite you, not to spite you. <laughs> you and your microaggressions. Please leave a rating. Halligan is always reading them out to me. And the reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the only positive in my life at the moment. Oh, yes, here we go. <laughs> this is from Drew. Now my favourite show. Highly informative. Liam Halligan should be a government advisor. You're insufferable enough as it is. They can't afford me. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.